Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Bonjour and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapters 23, 24, 25 and 26 of The Da Vinci Code. So where we left off, we learned all about anagrams and the number fee. So much about anagrams. Like we really went on and 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 on about anagrams. And then Sophie's like, all right, I'm going back up to the Mona Lisa. And Robert's like, okay, well, I'll just... Keep on my merry way to the embassy, but then he has a brainwave about PS. He thinks that means something else. And so he's making a decision that he's going to go back up there and meet up with Sophie. Meanwhile, Silas is in a church. As per usual, Silas is still at the Sans Sol Peace. So we start chapter 23 with Sophie. She's arriving to the Salle de Astat, which is the room that the Mona Lisa's in. And she's standing there gazing reluctantly down the hall at where her grandfather's body still lay. And she's like, oh, whoopsie. Really should have appreciated him in life and taken him at his word and accepted his offer of forgiveness so many times because he had that orgy. Remember, so Jacques Sunier had an orgy and she is just the biggest prude and is not happy about it. And so she didn't talk to him for years and years and years. And now she's thinking, huh, maybe I should have spoken to him. She says the man had reached out so many times over the past 10 years and I just, you know, did not acknowledge him or his existence. I did not open any of his letters. And she's trying to justify it being like, he lied to me. He kept appalling secrets. What was I supposed to do? I don't know, stay out of your granddad's sex life maybe? But she's like, well, now he's dead and he's talking to me from the grave at the Mona Lisa. So she's in the room, the Salle d'Estat, And of course, we've got to hear a little bit about the room. It's one of the museum's rare cul-de-sacs, a dead end, and the only room off the middle of the Grand Gallery. Okay. But as she's going into the room, she's like, oh, I'm going to need a black light because he's probably writing in invisible ink. If there is a message at the Mona, it's probably in invisible ink. So I better go get a black light. So then she heads back towards the dead body and she finds near the dead body, a small ultraviolet pen light. Very handy that that just happens to be there. I thought they had like huge UV light displays over there, but but she's found a little pocket-sized one, so that's good. And now she's hurrying back to the room with the Mona Lisa. But as she steps over the threshold into the room, her entrance was met by an unexpected sound of muffled footsteps racing toward her from inside the chamber. And she thinks, there's someone here. And a ghostly figure emerges from out of the reddish haze and she jumps back. And I don't know if we're meant to be feeling suspense because like, 
we know it's Robert. Like, we know it's not Sonia's ghost or anything. And Langdon goes, there you are. And she goes, Robert, I told you to get out of here. And he says, where'd you go? And she said, well, I had to get a blacklight, obviously. And he says, look, Sophie, listen, the letters PS, do they mean anything to you? Anything at all? And it's like, oh, fuck, mate, we covered it. Princess Sophie. Everything means something to Sophie because every single clue is apparently just directed at her and her alone. And she's afraid they're going to be heard. So she shuts the door to the room because she's like, oh, we've got to whisper. And she goes, yeah, it means Princess Sophie, dipshit. And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. But anything else? Did your grandfather ever use PS in any other way? A monogram or maybe on stationery or a personal item? And she's like, holy sh, holy shit. How does Robert know that? Sophie had indeed seen the initials PS once before in a kind of monogram. All right, well, we're going to get the flashback. It's not going to be a chapter of the Da Vinci Code unless we get a flashback. So here it is. It was the day before her ninth birthday. She was secretly combing the house, searching for hidden birthday presents. What a little snoop. And so she's digging around, trying to find her present and finding nothing in the entire house. She decided to go into her grandfather's bedroom. The room was off limits to her, probably appropriately so considering Jacques was a fan of an orgy or two, but Jacques asleep downstairs on the couch. So she's like, I'll just take a quick peek. So she's tiptoeing over to the closet. See, I was half expecting her to find like masks, ball gags, rope ties, maybe a strap on. I I didn't know what she would find. Maybe I've read too much Fifty Shades of Grey and 365 Days, my coverage of which is available on Patreon, by the way. Patreon.com slash Breaking Down Bad Books. Check it out. But she's looking in the cupboard. She's not finding anything. Then she's moving over to the bureau. She's opening the drawers and she's like, there's got to be something. And then at the bottom drawer, she finds some black clothes that he had never worn before. I'm thinking robes. And also she sees a glint of gold in the back of the drawer. It looked like a pocket watch chain. And then she's like, wait a minute, it's a necklace. And at the end of the necklace, there was a brilliant gold key. And so she's like, whoa, this is a pretty looking key. Its large golden head was in the shape of a cross, but not a normal cross. This was an even armed one, like a plus sign. And in the middle of the cross was a strange symbol, two letters intertwined with some kind of flowery design. And she's thinking, P.S., what the hell's this? And then her granddad, he's woken up. So he's like, Sophie, what the fuck? You going through my sex drawer? And she goes, no, no, no. I was just looking for my birthday present and I found this key. And so then he's like, oh, geez, Soph. Oh, you need to respect other people's privacy, okay? This key is special. If you'd lost it, would have been not great. And she goes, well, I'm sorry, I really am. I thought it was a necklace for my birthday. Like, oh, way to drop a hint that you want a necklace for your birthday. And he's like, okay, um, you need to respect other people's privacy, babe. And she's like, yeah, I get it. And he goes, all right, we'll talk some other time. Right now, the gardens need to be weeded. And so then he sends her out to go and weed the gardens. Oh, this poor Sophie, horrible childhood. And then the next day, her birthday, she didn't get any presents. He didn't even wish her happy birthday all day. What? A see you next Tuesday. But then that night, as she's going to bed, she finds a note card lying on her pillow. And on that, there's a riddle. So he's organized a treasure hunt for her, for her to get her birthday present, which is cute. But you could have done that in the morning instead of giving her the silent treatment all day. Like that's, that's emotionally abusive. So she's running around solving riddles. She finally gets back to her bedroom 
And in the middle of the bedroom, there's a shining red bicycle with a ribbon tied to the handlebars. And he goes, yeah, I know you asked for a doll, but I thought you might like this even better. And so then the next day he was teaching her how to ride a bike. Okay, is all this necessary? for the reveal that she found a key on a necklace with PS written on it. I thought we were gonna stop the flashback there and then, but here we are getting a montage of her riding a bike and solving riddles and doing a treasure hunt. Oh, it's all so unnecessary. This is why it's such a long book. Like I'm at page 130 right now. I've been talking for seven or eight weeks about this book and we're still in the Louvre because we've had so many flashbacks. I'm gonna be reading this book till Christmas. So then eventually she brings up to her granddad. She's like, sorry about the key. And he goes, yeah, it's fine. I can't stay mad at you. Grandfathers and granddaughters always forgive each other. Oh, <laughs> oh not the case. <laughs> she doesn't forgive you for having sex. And she says, well, what is the key open? I've never seen a key like that. It was so pretty. And he goes, it opens a box where I keep many secrets. And she's like, oh, I hate secrets. Come on, let me know, let me know. And I'm thinking, nah, bitch, you don't want to know what's in that box. And she says, I saw letters on the key and a flower. And he says, yes, that's my favorite flower. It's called a fleur de lis. We have them in the garden. In English, we call that kind of flower a lily. And she's like, yeah, I love lilies. Oh my goodness. And he says, well, I'll make a deal with you. If you can keep my secret and never talk about it ever again to me or anybody, then someday I will give it to you. When the time comes, the key will be yours. It has your name on it. And she's like, no, it doesn't. It said PS, my name's not PS. And he's like, well, from now on, I'm gonna call you Princess Sophie. So we didn't even call her that for the first 10 years of her life. She's like, that was my nickname as a child, Princess Sophie. Well, okay, only, you know, from 10 years onwards. So from that day on, they never again spoke of the key and she became his Princess Sophie. Ah, there endeth the flashback. For now, at least. And so she's standing there in front of the Mona Lisa just in silence, and Langdon's like, hey, babe, wake the hell up, Earth to Sophie, the initials, have you ever seen them? And she's like, oh, he told me not to speak of the key, I don't want to betray his trust, even though he's dead and I didn't speak to him for 10, 15 years. Oh, all right, I'll tell him. And she goes, yeah, all right. I saw the initials PS once when I was very young. And he says, where? And she says, on something very important to him. Okay, do you want to spit it out, Sophie? Like there's a ticking clock here. Fash will be back any minute. Your granddad's dead. You're in danger. And she's stringing it along. And Langdon's like, okay, babe, look alive. Can you tell me if the initials appeared with a symbol? A fleur de lis perhaps. And she's like, oh my God. Oh, she staggers back in amazement. She's like, oh, oh. Like, you know that image of Wendy Williams dressed as the Statue of Liberty fainting? She's like that. She's like, oh. And she says, how could you possibly know that? And he says, I'm fairly certain your grandfather was a member of a secret society, a very old covert brotherhood. And okay, it can't be that secret if you know about it, Robert. Doesn't sound very secret. And Sophie felt a knot tighten in her stomach. She was certain of it. She was certain of it. She's like, oh, that makes complete sense. And she's certain of it because of that thing that she saw, that unthinkable, unforgivable thing that she had seen. I'll remind you it was just an orgy. But if you think that's shocking, you should check my search history, babe. Langdon says the fleur de lis combined with the initials PS, that is the Brotherhood's official device, their coat of arms, their logo. And she's thinking, how do you know this? Considering it's meant to be a secret society. And he goes, oh, I've written all about it. 
I've researched the symbols of secret societies. It's a specialty of mine. Okay. Then they're not secret. They call themselves the Priory of Sion. They're based in France and they attract powerful members from all over Europe. In fact, they are one of the oldest surviving secret societies on Earth. And Sophie's like, well, I've never heard of them. And Langdon says the Priory's membership has included some of history's most cultured individuals. Men like Botticelli, Sir Isaac Newton, Victor Hugo, and Leonardo da Vinci. And okay, imagine being the other guy. Like imagine being a member of the Priory of Sion and not being a fabulous artist or author or scientist or inventor. You'd just be like, oh, I, uh, I make my own soaps. I collect souvenir spoons. Like how shit would you feel if you're up against the ranks of Botticelli, Newton, Hugo, and Da Vinci, and you're just like, hi, my name's Bob. I think they've even gone downhill with Sonier. Sonier's like the curator of the Louvre, which is a big deal, but not compared to having your artwork hung up in the Louvre. But Sophie, she's flabbergasted. She's staring. She's like, Da Vinci was in a secret society? She's like, what? That's crazy. Oh my God. Babe, you're going to have to get on board because there's a whole treasure hunt in the Louvre afoot. You're going to need to start getting with it and accepting all this crap. And Langdon, again, he was the secretary of this secret society, apparently, because he says Da Vinci presided over the priory between 1510 and 1519 as the Brotherhood's grandmaster. And that might help explain your grandfather's passion for Leonardo's work. The two men share a historical fraternal bond, and it all fits perfectly with their fascination for goddess iconology, paganism, feminine deities, and contempt for the church. The priory has a well-documented history of reverence for the sacred feminine. And she says, you're telling me this group is a pagan goddess worship cult? And he says, more like the pagan goddess worship cult. But more importantly, they are known as the guardians of an ancient secret one that made them immeasurably powerful. Again, it was a secret society, but apparently not. And also, did you notice how like, they're, they're totally meant to be feminists. Oh, they love the sacred feminine. They worship goddesses. Wouldn't have a woman as a member. Oh no, it's, it's just a brotherhood. You've got to be a man to be a grandmaster or to be in the Priory of Sion, but they worship women. That's sus to me. You know what? If you're going to talk the talk about the sacred feminine, you better fucking walk the walk and maybe recruit some women. This priory of sign, they think they're so much better than the church because they embrace women. And it's like, yeah, well, let one in your club. Stupid hypocrites. And Sophie's not believing it. She's like a secret pagan cult headed by Leonardo da Vinci. (laughs) Sounds utterly absurd. But... Even as she's dismissing it, she felt her mind reeling back 10 years to the night she had mistakenly surprised her grandfather and witnessed what she still could not accept. And she's like, wait, would that explain things? You need to get over the orgy, Soph. You need to get over it. Langdon says the identities of living Priory members are kept extremely secret. Of course they are. But the PS and Fleur de Lis that you saw as a child are proof. It could only have been related to the Priory. I don't know about that. I mean, PS is pretty common. The fleur de lis is pretty common. But whatever, Langdon's convinced. And Sophie's like, yeah, okay, all well and good, but we gotta hurry up. You need to go, fascist coming. And he's like, nah, I'm invested. And then slowly as if moving underwater, Langdon turned his head and gazed through the reddish haze toward the Mona Lisa. And he thinks the fleur de lis, the flower of Lisa, 
the Mona Lisa. What, what? That's a tenuous link, I'm sorry. He says it was all intertwined. Uh, is it? A silent symphony echoing the deepest secrets of the Priory of Sion and Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, talk about a stretch. And then it says a few miles away, on the riverbank, the bewildered driver of a twin-bed trailer truck stood at gunpoint and watched as the captain of the judicial police let out a guttural roar of rage and heaved a bar of soap out into the turgid waters of the Seine. And that's the end of the chapter. And I'm thinking, okay, Fash, you might be angry that you got conned, but maybe don't throw the bar of soap into the river. That's kind of evidence. You know, you might want to bag it and take it back to HQ. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And so then we go to chapter 24, it's a small one, and we're with Silas, and he's in the church still. Okay, so he's gazing up at the obelisk in the Saint-Sulpice, and he's taking in the length of the massive marble shaft. Okay, all right, read that one out of context. He's taking in the length of a massive shaft. Good for him. And he's glancing around the church, making sure that he's alone. And then he's like, okay. He's kneeling down at the obelisk because at the base of the Solpice obelisk, there will be the keystone hidden beneath the rose line. 
And so he's knocking on the floor, trying to find a tile that sounds a bit hollow. And then finally, one of them echoes a bit strangely. And he's like, oh my God, there's a hollow area beneath the floor, exclamation mark. Like, wasn't that just what you were looking for? So why are you shocked when it comes? Like four people that he killed have told him this. And now he's finally stumbling across it. And he's like, holy shit, that was unexpected. And so then he's looking around for something to break the tile. And high above in the balcony, Sister Sandrine, she's like, oh shit. She's like, it's all going down. Her darkest fears had just been confirmed. The visitor was not who he seemed. The mysterious Opus Dei monk had come to Saint-Sulpice for another purpose, a secret purpose. But she thinks, well, you're not the only one with secrets. Because she was more than just a keeper of this church. She was a sentry. And tonight the ancient wheels had been set in motion. The arrival of this stranger at the base of the obelisk was a signal from the Brotherhood. It was a silent call of distress. And that's the end of that chapter. And so we open chapter 25 at the US Embassy in Paris. The often talked about US Embassy. Oh, and of course we've got to get directions. So it's, it's on the Avenue Gabriel, just north of the Champs-Élysées. It's a three acre compound. It's considered US soil, meaning all who stand on it are subject to the same laws and protections as they would encounter standing in the United States. Okay, thanks for explaining how embassies work, Dan. And so the embassy's night operator's just flipping through a magazine and then the phone rings and she's like, US Embassy. <laughs> All right, what, what an official answer for a telephone call at the US Embassy. And so the caller is speaking English accented with French. And it says, good evening, I need some assistance. I was told you had a phone message for me on your automated system. The name is Langdon. I've forgotten my three digit access code. If you could help me, I would be most grateful. So it's clearly Fash pretending to be Langdon, trying to suss out what went on. And the operator goes, uh, sorry, your message must be quite old. That system was removed two years ago for security precautions. Like, okay, she's really given him the detail there. And then she says, moreover, all the access codes were five digits. I think you should keep that close to your chest. Like, I don't know if you should be revealing that over the phone to some random person who's trying to access your messaging system that doesn't exist. And Fash is like, you have no automated phone system? And she goes, no, any message for you would be handwritten in our services department. Handwritten? I mean, get with the time. Have they heard of email? Has anyone in this book heard of email? Sure. Oh. <sighs> All right. I'm sure one of these days they'll get on with the times and maybe get an automated message system. But now it's, it's all handwritten, apparently. So Fash hangs up and he's dumbstruck. He's pacing the banks of the Seine. Like, maybe rush back to the Louvre, Fash. I don't know why you're making calls. Get back there. Because Langdon obviously didn't jump into the street. But he's thinking, oh, I was certain that Langdon dialed a local number. He says he had seen Langdon dial a local number and enter a three-digit code and then listen to a recording. Okay, eagle eyes, he saw him enter a three-digit code and he saw him enter a local number. How could you have seen that from across the room? And he's thinking, oh, if Langdon didn't phone the embassy, then who the hell did he call? And then he realized that he's holding the cell phone that Langdon used to make that call. What a freaking idiot. And he goes, oh, I'll just check the phone call logs. So he pulls up a list of recently dialed numbers and he can see a Paris exchange followed by a three digit code, 454. So he can see the keys that were inputted. That seems suspicious. I don't really know if that would have popped up in a call log, but whatever. So he redials the number and then he gets Sophie's answering machine saying, oh, hey, you've reached Sophie. 
And Fash is like, oh, this fucking bitch. He's, he's not happy. And so he types in the code that he miraculously has figured out, 454. So now he's going to hear the message. You would hope that Sophie would have said at the end of her message to Langdon being like, oh, maybe like press this code and then delete the message once you've heard it. But I don't think she did that. Well, that's the end of that chapter. So we go to chapter 26 and we are back with our protagonists at the Mona Lisa. And okay, we all know the Mona Lisa, right? Well, not enough apparently. So we've got to get the history. Despite her monumental reputation, the Mona Lisa was a mere 31 inches by 21 inches, smaller even than the posters of her sold in the Louvre gift shop. She hung on the northwest wall of the Salle d'Estat behind a two-inch thick pane of protective plexiglass. Ah, we gotta hear what position of the compass she's facing, like, fuck me, dear. Painted on a poplar wood panel, her ethereal mist-filled atmosphere was attributed to da Vinci's mastery of the sfumato style. Blah, blah, blah. Since taking up residence in the Louvre, the Mona Lisa, or La Jaconde, as they call her in France, had been stolen twice. Most recently in 1911. <laughs> most recently, 90 years ago at the time of writing. Like, that's, uh, that's not that recent. So apparently after she went missing, Parisians wept in the streets, Dan says. Parisians wept in the streets, did they? Is there a source for that? Is there some historical record of Parisians weeping in the streets because the Mona Lisa got stolen? Like, sure, they may have, but it seems pretty dramatic to say that with nothing to back it up. And two years later, the Mona Lisa was discovered hidden in the false bottom of a trunk in a florist hotel room. All right, great. So Langdon, now having made it clear to Sophie that he had no intention of leaving, he's moving with her towards the Mona Lisa which is still 20 yards ahead of them, apparently. Oh my God. Oh, just walk up to the fucking thing and have a look at it. What is taking so long? But she's walking up to the Mona Lisa and she's got her little pen light, her UV pen light, and she's shining it on the floor. She's swinging it back and forth, trying to find some writing. Like, would you maybe not walk up to the Mona Lisa and look there first and then maybe work your way backwards if you don't see anything at the Mona Lisa? which is where all the clues pointed you to look, but she's got to do a sweep of the floor a full 20 yards before she gets to the Mona Lisa. She's an idiot. Like, I understand being thorough, but do you have to make it harder for yourself? And Langdon, he's just thinking like, oh, I'm going to go see the Mona Lisa. I love the Mona Lisa. It says Langdon was already feeling the tingle of anticipation that accompanied his face-to-face reunions with great works of art. Like, can, uh, can you not focus on the murder mystery at hand, Robert? We get it. You like art. And okay, you thought you got enough info on the Mona Lisa, didn't you? You thought you had enough backstory, but no, you didn't. Dan Brown wants you to know that it's a great painting. He says Langdon could now begin to see the panel of dark glass on the wall. Behind it, he knew in the confines of her own private cell hung the most celebrated painting in the world. The Mona Lisa's status as the most famous piece of art in the world, Langdon knew, had nothing to do with her enigmatic smile. Well, it it might have, I don't know. Nor was it due to the mysterious interpretations attributed her by many art historians and conspiracy buffs. (sighs) Quite simply, the Mona Lisa was famous because Leonardo da Vinci claimed she was his finest accomplishment. I don't know if that's the case. Is that why she's famous? Just because he said so? I don't know. Apparently, Da Vinci carried the painting with him whenever he traveled. He said it was his most sublime expression of female beauty. (sighs) Ah, spare me. 
Even so, many art historians, too many to name, suspected da Vinci's reverence for the Mona Lisa had nothing to do with its artistic mastery. In actuality, in actuality, what a dumb phrase, the painting was a surprisingly ordinary sfumato portrait. So apparently some art historians say that there's a hidden message deep within the layers of paint. And that, oh, just like everything else, it's, it's an in-joke. One of the world's most documented inside jokes. It's a well-documented collage of double entendres and playful illusions. And Langdon's like, there's no mystery about her smiling. There's no mystery at all. And so then we get another flashback. Oh, it's a new chapter. So we get a new flashback. Here we go. Oh, he's flashing back to a time when he went to the Essex County Penitentiary and he did a seminar for prisoners talking to them about the Mona Lisa. And this was part of a Harvard outreach program attempting to bring education into the prison system. And his colleagues liked to call it culture for convicts, which seems super condescending and shitty. I don't like that culture for convicts, like fuck off. But also, what are you doing, guys? Harvard, if you're going to go into a prison and teach them some things, maybe teach them something a little bit more worthwhile than Mona Lisa history and facts. Come on. Like it would be better to teach them art, like give them paint supplies and let them draw for themselves. Like, wouldn't that be more therapeutic than just hearing stuffy Robert Langdon talk on about hidden messages in the Mona Lisa? Oh God. So he's standing at an overhead projector in a darkened penitentiary library. So, okay, this prison has the same amount of technology as Harvard. They're all about the overhead projectors. And he found many of the prisoners attending the class surprisingly engaged, rough but sharp. Oh God, he's condescending. And he says to them, you may notice that the background behind her face is uneven. Da Vinci painted the horizon line on the left significantly lower than the right. And one of the inmates is like, oh, so he screwed up, did he? (laughs) And Langton goes, no, Da Vinci didn't do that too often. Actually, it's a little trick. By lowering the countryside on the left, Da Vinci made Mona Lisa look much larger from the left side than the right side. A little Da Vinci inside joke. Okay, did Da Vinci design the front facing camera on an iPhone? Because that's exactly what happens. I'll take a selfie of myself in a mirror and I'll be like, yeah, I look great. And then I'll flip that little front facing camera backwards and I'll take a photo that way. And I'll be like, ah, do you guys ever do that? You get surprised when you open your phone camera and you're like, ah, is that what I look like? Da Vinci's playing a trick on me. And so Langdon tells them historically, the concepts of male and female have assigned sides. Do they? Left is female and right is male. Since when? You can't just say historically this concept existed and not back that up at all. He says Da Vinci was a big fan of feminine principles. Wouldn't have invited any women into his little brotherhood, but he was a big fan of feminine principles. And so he made Mona Lisa look more majestic from the left than the right. All right, well, that was the extent of feminism in the 1400s, isn't it? Oh, I've made the painting and she looks better from the left than the right. Feminism. And so then some prisoner, he shouts out, I heard he was a fag. Okay, but just dropping the F-bomb into the Da Vinci Code. Didn't remember that. Uh, okay. All right. That's a fun little use of language, isn't it? And so then Langdon's like, historians don't generally put it that way. But yes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. He's like, Da Vinci's a fag? Well, not in so many words, but yeah, he is actually. He's He's a big giant homo. And so then the prisoner goes, is that why he was into the whole feminine thing? Because he was gay. 
And Langdon says, actually, Da Vinci was in tune with the balance between male and female. He believed that a human soul could not be enlightened unless it had both male and female elements. And so then someone else calls out and says, you mean like chicks with dicks? And all of the prisoners laughed. Ugh, this is kind of gross. And Langdon considered offering an etymological sidebar about the word hermaphrodite and its ties to Hermes and Aphrodite, but something told him it would be lost on this crowd. So that's Dan Brown being like, I've got a great little tidbit. It doesn't work in this scene, but I'll just slot it in anyway. And so then someone else says, hey, Mr. Langford, which is (laughs) hilarious. Um, Hey, Mr. Langford, is it true that the Mona Lisa is a picture of Da Vinci in drag? I heard that was true. Where's he hearing this? Like just in the gym at the prison compound in the yard. When they're doing laps of the yard, are they just like, oh, did you hear uh, Da Vinci? He's actually in drag in the Mona Lisa. And so the other inmates like, what? What's a drag queen? It's when a man dresses as a woman, you know, like a chick with a dick. And I think Da Vinci, he was a flaming fag. And he actually, he, he was a drag queen. And he painted himself in drag. That's what I heard. And Langford, he says, oh, it's quite possible. Da Vinci was a prankster. And computerized analysis of the Mona Lisa and Da Vinci's self-portraits confirmed some startling points of congruency in their faces. Whatever Da Vinci was up to, his Mona Lisa is neither male nor female. It curries a subtle message of androgyny. It's a fusing of both. Is it? I've seen the doll and she looks quite feminine to me. I mean, it's pretty rude to be calling her androgynous. Not that there's anything wrong with androgynous, but if you don't identify with being androgynous and someone calls you androgynous, I'd be like, excuse me? And I know we can't assume someone's gender, but I'm pretty sure the Mona Lisa is, she's a gal. I hate to be talking in binaries here. I know it. I sound like JK Rowling right now, but I think the Mona Lisa's a woman. There, I said it. If that doesn't make me woke, then lock me up. Cancel me on Twitter. Just follow me. It's at pod breaking down and then cancel me. And so then one of the other inmates says, you sure that's not just some Harvard bullshit way of saying Mona Lisa is one ugly chick. And Langford, he's like, (laughs) you may be right, but actually Da Vinci left a big clue that the painting was supposed to be androgynous. Okay, really a big clue. Has anyone here ever heard of an Egyptian God named Amon? And so then the big guy, he goes, hell yeah, God of masculine fertility, of course. And Langdon's stunned. Even though he just set them up and asked them a question, he's stunned that someone answered. Again, he's a condescending little prick. And the muscular man says, it says so in every box of Amon condoms. It's got a guy with a ram's head on the front and it says he's an Egyptian god of fertility. And Langford, he's not familiar with the brand name of condoms. But he was glad to hear that prophylactic manufacturers had gotten their hieroglyphs right. And he says, well done. Amon is indeed represented as a man with a ram's head and his promiscuity and curved horns are related to our modern sexual slang, horny. And so the inmates are like, no shit. And he says, no shit. And they say, no way. And he goes, yes way. This is what the third or fourth time we've had a lecture from Robert Langdon to reveal historical concepts to us and like art history concepts to us. It's such a cliche at this point that Dan Brown is just going to explain something by literally having Langdon explain it to a bunch of people and having the crowd shout back to him and to have him confirm with the crowd, no way, yes way. This is the third time at least. 
So Langdon says, do you know who Amon's counterpart was? The Egyptian goddess of fertility? It was Isis. And so then he gets a pen and he writes it down. And he says, so we have the male god Amon, A-M-O-N, and the female god Isis, whose ancient pictogram was once called Lisa, L apostrophe I-S-A. And so he writes that on the wall and it says Amon Lisa. And he goes, ring any bells? And someone goes, Mona Lisa, holy crap. That's right, it's another anagram, guys. It's another anagram. And he says, gentlemen, not only does the face of Mona Lisa look androgynous, okay, it doesn't, but her name is an anagram of the divine union of male and female. And that, my friends, is Da Vinci's little secret and the reason for Mona Lisa's knowing smile. So he's saying that Da Vinci left a clue about her androgyny because her name, Mona Lisa, is an anagram of two Egyptian gods who had something or other to do with androgyny. But, like, Da Vinci was Italian and he called it La Gioconda. So I don't know if that theory holds any weight. Was Da Vinci bilingual? He may have been, but I don't think Amon Lisa is an anagram of La Gioconda. And like Dan Brown already told us earlier that it's called La Jaconde in France. So he knows that there are translations, but this book just solely focuses on the English language. All anagrams are in the English language because any, any foreign language anagrams will just go over Robert's head. And so now we're 10 feet in front of the Mona Lisa back in the present time. Just walk up to the thing. And she's still waving the black light on the floor. Oh my God, can you not wave it on the plexiglass? Like he's clearly going to write on the plexiglass. (sighs) She's checking the floor, painstakingly checking the floor. So she said, my grandfather was here. And he's like, how do you know? But there's a little drop of some sort of liquid on the ground. And he's like, oh, it might be ink. And then he's like, oh, wait a minute. It's blood. He was bleeding. That's hilarious. And Sophie says, he wouldn't have come here without a reason. I know he left a message for me here. And so she's just still looking at the floor. She walks right up to the Mona Lisa and she illuminated the floor directly in front of the painting, just waving the light back and forth. And she's like, oh no, there's nothing here. There's no message here. And then Langdon's like, um, look up. And so there's a faint purple glimmer on the protective glass. And so reaching down, he takes Sophie's wrist and slowly moves the light up the painting itself. And they both freeze. This Sophie, she... She's meant to be so smart and good at treasure hunts and she's just obsessed on the floor. Look up, Soph, look up. And so on the glass, six words glowed in purple, scrawled directly across the Mona Lisa's face. And we don't get to know those six words yet because that's the end of the chapter. So I'll leave you in suspense regarding that one. Or you could Google it or read the book or watch the movie or have memory of when you did last read or witness this story. So it's not that suspenseful if you really want to find out. I assume it's just going to be an anagram, but I'll touch base with you guys next week for the big reveal of what that anagram is. As always, please feel free to leave a rating or a review, and I will see you next week for the next batch of chapters. Au revoir! Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. 
To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.